0: But I would say I was surprised at some of the emotions I had going into it. It was very, very reminiscent of the early days in the NICU. Hi, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. And today I have a version of a solo episode. You may remember that back in episode 59... A month ago, I released an interview with Catherine Witcher, an IEP advocate all about educational advocacy. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to it yet, be sure to check it out. The day after interviewing Catherine for my podcast, she interviewed me for hers. You see, her podcast, The Special Education Inner Circle, is created for all members of the IEP table, parents, teachers, everyone. I shared my experience as a budding newbie in the educational advocacy world, and after recording with her, I realized I really wanted to use this episode as kind of a part two to episode 59 because I share more of my perspective in it. In this episode, I share what it was like to go into that first eligibility meeting where it is determined if your child is eligible for an IEP or a 504 based on their level of needs. Mostly, I wanted to share this episode with you because I talk about the emotional aspect of it all. I'm sure it is relatable for a lot of you, and I really hope that you feel validated and kind of process through that. Now, we recorded this in the summer before Kim started school. Well, he's a couple weeks into school now. And at the end of the recording with Catherine, I share a bit of an epilogue to the story. So stay tuned. All right, let's jump in.
1: Can you imagine walking into your very first IEP meeting? That's exactly what just happened to Madeline, and I'm so excited for you to learn from her today on the Special Education Inner Circle podcast. I'm your host, Catherine, and today I have with me Madeline, who's going to share with you how she ended up at an IEP table and what we need to learn from her experience. Madeline, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you. This is such an honor. I am so passionate about sharing kind of the parent perspective and what's going on on our side. So, um, you know, I'm really happy to be here today. So my son is three years old. He just aged out of early intervention a couple months ago, which is what led us to our first IEP meeting. And, um, that is because he has a rare genetic syndrome that, uh, causes a lot of different medical complexities. And that made our IEP experience kind of confusing and a little complicated. We split it up into two different uh, meetings and I'll tell you a little bit about him. So. He has a rare form of dwarfism and so that, you know, causes some developmental delays because he's not able to access everything the way that a typical three-year-old could. So things like doorknobs and, you know, dresser drawers and sink faucets and, you know, things like that, he has a hard time reaching. So he is delayed in a lot of self-help I forgot the exact category. We went through each of the categories. It's a lot.
1: It's a lot of categories. It's like (laughs) lesson number one. First of all, we don't have to memorize all the categories. It's a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Teachers, just remember, parents are not going to remember all the categories. They're dealing with medically complex issues. This is all new to them. For every parent who has felt like, I don't even know the right terms that I'm supposed to be using, you're not alone. So, okay. So we've got all these categories and Mm -hmm. we've got self-care or self-help. and And these different things that he struggles with and you had services in early intervention, and now you're, you're moving over this early childhood and they're going through all of these different areas with you.
0: Right. Right. And he, he, on top of that, he also has hypotonia. And so, you know, that kind of muddled it up a little bit too, because it was like, well, is he not able to do these different milestones that typical three-year-olds can because of just delayed gross motor skills? Like he walked at two. And he's still not very stable in that. And so, you know, that's another little piece of the puzzle. Um, He also has hearing loss. He has hearing aids. And we've been working with a therapist from the School for the Deaf to um, help his language along. So, you know, that's another little part of the puzzle. He also has blindness. So it's like, well, can he, and it's not, he's not profoundly blind, And that's even a big question mark. Blindness is a hard thing to gauge and exactly what they can see, which kind of baffles me, but they, no one can really tell me what he sees. We just look at his functionality. So that's also a, did he see the curb when he tripped over it? Or, you know, was that a vision issue? Was that a hypotonia issue? Was that a dwarfism issue? And, you know, he also has some medical things that are kind of more life-threatening that we track with medical specialists and so that doesn't really affect his educational experience but you know those are those are in there too. So he's a little complex guy and our IEP meeting I you know I kept asking our in-home therapist from early intervention you know so what's an IEP meeting? what should I expect and they, I feel like they had to keep telling me over and over and I was trying to like wrap my brain around what exactly the point was, and they told me we were, um, you know, creating an individualized educational plan for his schooling, so kind of like the IFSPs that we were doing in home, but in the school setting, but I did not realize that this initial meeting was to see if he even qualified for IEP services, so that was something that I was a little tripped up with the whole time we were going through each category, like, okay, well, would he qualify for you mentioned it last night, I can't remember what it's called, right. but basically- now, so I recorded last O-H. night, so
1: everybody knows, like, Marilyn and I have <laughs> been hanging out for, like, 24 hours now, but we went yeah. out last night for her <laughs> podcast called The Rare Life, and I'll make sure that there's links um, for everybody so they can go follow you over there and listen to more of the stories that are so awesome just to give insights of- just what's happening in in our world of disabilities and access and medical care and school and all of the things. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mentioned um, OHI. So other, it's kind of like that catch all for all the things that um, don't fit into a very standardized other category. And I love that you brought up that you didn't know about the eligibility meeting. So all my teachers Mm -hmm. who are listening right now, just know like this is very confusing for parents. I have to go over this a lot um, inside of our special ed inner circle, inside the master IP coach mentorship. We're talking about this a lot. Like there's, it's two different pieces. You can't just go from, Um, oh, this child has a medical diagnosis. So now we get this IEP plan and like skip that step of an eligibility meeting, which you have a little like, you know, twist in the road of what Mm -hmm. happened during that eligibility meeting. And I think people are going to be like, what? Like she just told us all of these different layers of what's going on with her son. And then it's like, you know, uh, this really kind of moment in there. So you realize Mm -hmm. at some point, like, oh, like we're doing an eligibility meeting. We're not even in the actual IEP meeting yet. What did you find out in that eligibility meeting?
0: So when we were going through each of the different categories, you know, because he had so many different factors, we'd kind of go through and be like, well, is it this, like his developmental delays? Like, well, not really. Cause it, he doesn't show any cognitive delays and they kept you know, bringing up his testing, which I'll bring up right now too, with the testing. That was really interesting for me as a parent, because he's a very reserved kid just by nature, like even with these therapists he's seen for years, he takes a while to warm up to them every time they come. His grandma, he has to, you know, takes a while to warm up to her every time they come. So I was watching him go through this testing thinking like, he knows more than that. He's being shy right now. And so they went through his testing scores and a few of them I agreed with. I was like, yes, he's very delayed in things like self-help, but then there are things like his uh, receptive language. I was like, oh no, that that's much higher. And I know that even from tests that we did with his hearing therapist from the school for the deaf. And so things like that, that was kind of interesting to see the testing. I didn't feel totally represented him, but as we went through the testing scores, um, with that receptive language, they decided that we needed more information and, um, did a part two of the meeting. So we stopped the meeting there after going through all these different categories to see what he could qualify with. And we did another, uh, language test. And then we readjourned, and, you know, they were like, we just don't know that he qualifies for an IEP. And so that's when we started talking about a 504.
1: Oh, wait, hold on. Cause everybody (laughs) hear that. Okay. Did you guys catch that? (laughs) They were just like, um, thanks for coming back, but no, like this is, this is not going to happen. We're going to talk about a 504. What I think is really important for people to understand, let's just fill in the blank. There's one blank for them. Because he is three, it's not like he's going into kindergarten, he's going into a preschool type setting or he's receiving Mm -hmm. services that are kind of a la carte, there could be a lot of different options depending on where somebody lives, what their state provides. Um, what the school system provides in that way. So now that we kind of know the plot twist of we're not even going to like get an IEP, we're gonna talk about this 504. Can you jump ahead just a little bit and say, like, what does his placement look like? So what is he going to be? receiving? Is he going to a school on a regular basis at age three? I know we're in summer right now, but is he going to be going to a school for like a preschool program that is partially, we're going to say neurotypical or typical developing kids and children with disabilities, or is it something else? What, what's the placement?
0: So we are super lucky because he gets to go to the school for the deaf for his preschool program. And here in Utah, at least they get great funding. And so that's really where we wanted him to go you know ever since he was really tiny language has always been the number one concern we've had developmentally with his hearing loss and so um you know we had a tour there when he was i think he was only six months old and we went i was like i want to see the school i want to see where we're headed where we're working towards and so we went there to the school and i was able to see all the resources they had specifically for kids with hearing loss and they have things like speech language pathologists and audiologists and play therapists and really low ratio of teacher to student in the classroom and things like that. And I was like, you know what, this, this feels so right for him. So it was interesting going into the IEP meeting where I knew that we would talk about what was best for him, whether he would go with the district or with the school for the deaf, or I didn't realize then, but, or, you know, just a private. Preschool. Um, When, you know, really that was, that's what I wanted the whole time was for him to go to the school for the deaf. And there, you know, they said, well, you don't really need the 504 for the school for the deaf because they're already taking a lot of these things in considerations. Um, But once he goes into public school in kindergarten, which is the plan, he'll be mainstreamed um, for them to make accommodations there. So things like having an FM system, uh, which is a microphone clipped onto the teacher's shirt. And then it goes to the sound goes directly to Kimball's hearing aids. So he can hear, But he does also have the vision issues and the dwarfism. So even at the school for the deaf, we will talk to his teachers and they're very used to accommodating for things like this. So we will talk about him being in the front of the classroom so he can see in high contrast items and, uh, things to help him reach and access with his smaller size. So he's getting an
1: alternative placement, which I love, especially at age three, he's got all of these layers of things that are happening. And we need to make sure that he's in the supportive environment. And you're not having to teach the team, all the things, maybe Mm -hmm. some of the things because he does have his unique, uh, just different pieces that that need to be put together for him to have an awesome school day. But he's going to have this alternative school that he can go to where the teachers are trained in some areas that he needs you'll take the lead in some other areas and from my understanding from our conversation last night then he's going to have a 504 so basically it's taking their standard program and then that 504 is going to define those extra things that he needs within this already specialized environment
0: right right that's
1: perfect so let me just ask this let me just go like off the books here and talk about this cause now I'm curious. Yeah. Um, how many grade levels are there in this school for the deaf? Does it go beyond preschool years?
0: Yes. Yeah. They go all the way through. You can graduate high school there. Okay. And you know, in talking about, cause there's a lot of different options for him. He, you know, he also has the blindness, so he could go to a deaf blind classroom. He was receiving deaf blind services during early intervention but I've been told that in the deaf-blind classroom, a lot of those kids also have cognitive disabilities that wouldn't necessarily be the pace that he would need to reach his full potential. So we are putting him in the deaf section, but they have, yeah, they have it. They go through all through high school and that um, most children I was told are encouraged to be mainstreamed in kindergarten unless they have more delays and they want to catch up more then they will keep them there through kindergarten and then kind of reevaluate each year. But really their main motive, at least the Utah schools for the deaf, it is to mainstream them and help them kind of integrate into the world and not necessarily to keep them there. But those children with um, also some other disabilities will sometimes stay there or if they, you know, they love that um, the atmosphere of being with other kids like them.
1: I love that you are already seeing that there's many options and many avenues. Now the struggle with that uh, it, for you know our listeners here, they're they're saying like, well, I don't even have those options and I don't know what to do and. And I don't know how to figure out um, how do I get to a specialized school? So I just want to calm their mind and say, it it does work different in every state and what your resources are. So yes, your resources happen to be exactly what you need in the area where you're at. And for other people who are listening, who don't have the specialized school option, we would be talking a completely different path. So again, that's super important because sometimes like teachers in Utah might not realize that the teachers in Illinois don't have those same kind of um, resources. And then they're giving advice to parents and, you know, there's the Facebook Mm -hmm. groups and all the pressure and the chat that's happening about, you know, you need to do this or ask them about that. You have to keep in mind that where you're located absolutely does have an impact on what resources are available for that. So was there anything else that surprised you? So you were surprised about like, there's an eligibility meeting and then there's an IEP meeting, and then you're surprised that there's this 504 versus an IEP. Were there any other surprises that happened during this process for you?
0: Um, I would say, I mean, those covered the surprises of like the actual thing. But I would say I was surprised at some of the emotions I had going into it. It was very, very reminiscent of the early days in the NICU. And I've really been thinking about this as I've been preparing for this interview. Um, You know, when you, I'll take you into kind of like that scenario. When my son went to the NICU um, and I, after talking to a lot of parents, this is very typical. When your child goes to the NICU, they talk to you and they assume that you have this basis of knowledge, this medical knowledge, mostly when you're in the NICU and these terms and this jargon that there really is no reason for us to know in the first place. And, you know, there are those few that went to nursing school or something, and they do have that medical background, but for the most part, we did not choose this as a profession. This just happened. And, um, you know, I felt very disqualified to be my son's mother. I was like, this is super complex. We didn't know if he'd live. There were these really intense decisions to be made. He even, you know, his diagnosis. So his overall diagnosis is very rare, but he also has, um, some birth defects that are also really, really rare. And the professionals don't totally know what to do. And so they were asking us for our opinions and it was very much a, we were along for the ride, not really knowing what the heck was going on. Um, And I have this very stark memory of this time we went to visit my son in the NICU and we got to do what they call cares. And so every like two hours, I think they would change his diaper, move around the pull socks and just do these different things to keep them comfortable. And so like, okay, well, parents can do cares. Like that's something you can do to like try to be a parent while we're doing everything for your child right now. So I went to change his diaper and I'm not a first time mom either. I'll preface that. I have a five-year-old daughter and I went to change his diaper and it was a wet diaper. And I was like, well, should I, I went to the, like the NICU nurse and I was like, should I wipe him if he's just wet? And then she was like, Oh sure. And I was like, that was really weird. I just asked the NICU nurse if I should wipe my son's butt. Like this is just such a weird reversal of like, I don't feel in charge anymore. I don't really know what's going on. They're telling me these things I don't understand. I'm learning how to ask questions. So I'll bring it back to the IEP meeting or the eligibility meeting where I was like, where's my role in this? I, you know, I, I asserted myself since the NICU, I became, I felt like the leader of the team with therapists and I was like, Hey, I know what I'm doing. I know how to tell them that I'm not comfortable with something and I want other things. But then going into this meeting, it felt like the NICU all over again, because they were using these terms. I didn't understand. They were assuming I knew different things. They assumed I knew why we were there and I wanted to be mom, but I was also like, well, I don't totally know what's going on right now. And kind of relearning to ask questions and use my voice. And it was a quicker learning curve because I've been in that before, but it was, it was weird to feel triggered back to those first moments of being like, okay, am I mom or am I just kind of along for the ride?
1: Yeah. And that feeling happens often to parents where it does, it reminds them of another time when they had to be their child's voice, be their child's advocate. They had to um, learn new things and step up and they know, you know what it feels like to not have all the answers and have to dig for it. But you're just kind of like, okay, so like, w- w- how do I do that in this process? Like I mm-hmm. mastered one environment now I have to master it in another, but then it brings back all of those feelings. And, and a lot of times, and I think you might've said this last night, you said like, I kind of like the mama bear in me wanted to like come out and be like, okay, hey, you know? And a lot of times mm-hmm. teachers will feel um, attacked or they'll feel like the parent doesn't trust them. You know, what? it's not about you. For every teacher that's listening, it's not about you. It's about all these other experiences. You know what? There was, there was a nurse or a doctor or a therapist or somebody who didn't give Madeline all the information or assumed that she knew something or didn't give her all the tools that she needed. And then that just creates almost like a scar where you're like, okay, yeah. I didn't know that, but now I know better. So I'm going to do better. And, and we get this instinct as a parent of like, okay, well now I don't know what I'm doing right now, but I'm going to do better than I did before. Hmm. And you start asking these questions and you start coming at the people like, Hey, I need this information. I need to know what's going on. I need to know this. It's not about the person at the table. It's about the child and having to be their voice through very traumatic and scary experiences. And I don't really know a parent of a child with a disability who doesn't have some version of that NICU story, not always in the NICU, but it could be, you know, what people sometimes call simple disabilities, right? Something like dyslexia. Like, well, that's not medically traumatic, but it is traumatic when you find out as a parent that you didn't know that your child couldn't read and that they were faking it through things. And you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. now that I know better, I'm going to do better. Mm -hmm. And and that oomph comes up. So I appreciate you sharing that relationship of, you know, other experience outside the IEP definitely play into what happens at that eligibility or IEP meeting. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about what are you most concerned about going forward? It's important for other parents to hear what other parents are concerned about. And it's important for teachers to hear what are parents concerned about, because there's not always that honest conversation at the table or around these topics. So what's, what's keeping you up at night or what are you worried about?
0: So Kimball, I kind of mentioned, but Kimball's a very, you know, easygoing, soft-spoken kid. And that's just the way he came into this world. So I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And so, um, you know, with his older sister, I see him get pushed around and if she wants a toy, she just grabs it and he just takes it. And, you know, when he falls, he kind of just pops right back up and he laughs and it's really cute, but you know, those different things make me concerned that he will allow himself to kind of fall behind and not speak up if he can't hear the teacher and not ask for people to repeat things or if he can't see something or if he can't reach it. And so, you know, I do have that concern that he won't advocate for himself. I'm a very assertive person by nature. He is not. And so right now I'm advocating for him and that's great because that's the role I have right now, but knowing, you know, that he'll be going into school, he'll be gone for me, six hours a day, five days a week at this preschool, and then going to public school where he has a far different ratio to the teacher and, I'm afraid he'll be brushed off. And so I think, you know, picturing myself in these future meetings, I could see myself being kind of that overly assertive parent being like, Hey, I need to assert for my child. I'm sure he's not telling you he can't hear or see these things. And I want you to be my eyes in the classroom when I can't speak up for him. Um, and so that's definitely a concern, you know, that I have for him.
1: Have you thought about what maybe a teacher or a therapist at his new school could do, or maybe they already have done to help you feel more comfortable? And I mean, we're, we're parents, we're, we're just going to worry. That's just is what it is, Mm -hmm. but what could they do or what have they done to help you with this transition of don't worry, mom, we're going to take care of them for six hours. We got this.
0: Have they done anything else? So we'll have an orientation meeting. And so with this actual teacher, so I think that'll be really great. And I will take the time to tell her about his kind of more reserved nature and that he's not likely to speak up for himself. And I'm hoping that then they will take the initiative to, you know, be a little more gentle with him because when people come on to him really assertively, he kind of backs off, but to kind of, I don't know, I've seen different adults and even just like his aunts and uncles and other adults that he's around, I've seen them notice his soft nature and then approach him in that way. And he responds really well. So I guess I would really hope that they would see him you know, as an individual with unique personality and treat him as Kimball wants to be treated and you know, show him that softness and gentleness while also watching out for him and knowing that he's probably not going to assert for himself.
1: Okay, so my seasoned listeners are gonna be like, okay, Madeline, here's what you need to do. You need to make an all about me page and put the things that he Mm. likes and the things that he doesn't like, the experiences he loves, maybe some things that they could talk to him about of like, oh, we had this experience over the summer and it's 100%, not just okay, but encouraged from us on the season side to say, you know what, give us all the cheat sheets on Kimball. Like Mm. we want that because there's nothing more that I want as a teacher then to connect with my students. So we can make progress, but the relationship has to come first. That trust factor has to come first. So that's the homework that I'm giving you. Sorry. That's the teacher in me, Madeline, is that you're going to have to that one sheet, cheat sheet, that you're going to make sure you don't just give it to one person and hope they share it with the team. You're going to share it with the whole team. You're going to make it, you have one sheet is fine. We don't have to give, you know, his whole you know life story on there, but it's really those things of those connection points of like, what do you need them to know? So he is going to be able to be comfortable, especially in those first, you know, three to five days, which really can make or break that trust factor, you know, ongoing for the next months So um, there's
0: your to-do list. (laughs) I love that. When I I was thinking, as you're saying that, like, I feel like a lot of times when I'm with him with these different adults, I'm kind of giving them the cheat sheet, but like verbally, cause I'm there. So I'm, you say things like, oh, well he loves pretending his fingers are people. So do that with him. And that's a sure way to his heart. Or, you know, you may not want to like, just pick him up right away. He kind of wants to like have his distance for a little bit. So I love the idea of like putting that cheat sheet person that I usually am when we're there and putting it on an actual piece of paper so I can be there with him in spirit and kind of telling them like, hey, here are some ways to get close to Kimball and help him feel comfortable. Absolutely, and I'm gonna give you another um, tip too, and this is for all the parents who are
1: concerned about self-advocacy. Again, I don't know any parent of a child who has disabilities who's not concerned about self-advocacy, but we have to give children a chance to be self-advocates in a safe environment, and that means starting in the home or while you're out. So it's having him learn to say no or, you know, however he is communicating that, no, I don't like that. Instead of just pulling away, it's what is his sign going to be or what's his utterance going to be or what's the signal of like back off, stop. That's like universal for like, don't pick me up right now or go away. I need a break kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And teaching a a child to self-advocate even when you're there next to them and you could do it for them will help empower them to do it when you're not there too. So for all of our Mm -hmm. listeners who are like, this is scary because my child's going into junior high and we all know that junior high is much different than elementary school or oh my goodness, they're going into high school. Every transition and you're in a transition right now from one environment to another is to make sure that we are encouraging that. So I hope that again, Mm -hmm. our teachers and our therapists and our admins that are listening Remember to encourage your students' parents to work on simple things like self-advocacy out in the community and at home because that will generalize over. So, all right, let's do some words of encouragement to that mom who is getting ready for that first meeting. So we're gonna do two parts. One is the encouragement to the mom. What do we need to say to her before she goes in the first meeting? And the second part is going to be, What do we need to tell the teachers who are going to be having a meeting with a mom, you know, for the first time it's her meeting. So let's speak to both sides.
0: Yeah, I love that. So I would say to the mom who is doing what I just did going to their first IEP meeting, I would say to be very gentle with yourself and maybe let yourself go back to those first days, whether it was the NICU or the initial diagnosis of whatever your child is dealing with. And remember how lost you felt and how overwhelmed and disqualified. And then to think about, you know, how much growth you've had, you've gotten all the way to this point. You probably feel a lot more confident in that role than you used to. And that, that'll be the same case. Like I still feel very unqualified for this, but I know that just like in the NICU, I will learn, I will figure it out. And, you know, at some point I'll be a seasoned mom and I'll be helping other younger moms figure this out. So, I think recognizing that you're just at the beginning of this new phase of growth can be great. You know, just have self compassion for yourself. And then I would say, you know, kind of both to the new moms and also to the teachers and everyone who's at an IEP meeting uh, for a parent who's going for the first time, I would speak to the grief that you may be feeling or witnessing. So these parents I'm sure are putting on, you know, this brave face, the game face, and you know, they don't want you to see all the emotions, but I can pretty much guarantee that they are feeling these emotions of grief because these kind of meetings and things like this are very triggering to, I don't know, like I was, I kind of had my, my head racing with how did I get here? Like, is this really my life? Like I have to learn all these new words. I have to advocate maybe, you know, I'm assertive, but a lot of parents aren't because kids just are born to whoever, you know, all different kinds of personalities. And so, you know, finding yourself in this advocacy setting, I think can be triggering to that of this different lifestyle that you didn't envision for yourself. And so I would say if the parents in your meetings are being maybe kind of, you know, less respectful or maybe annoying or whatever, I would give them the benefit of the doubt of like, you know what? This is probably hard for them. This is probably emotionally triggering for them, not just in the few days of not knowing what was going on, but also just to like this this moment of being like, yeah, this is my life. And it's hard. And I I thought it would be something else, but here we are. And I guess going back again to those parents, I would also say, Um, In those moments that I've had these triggering, you know, triggered back to the grief of, of wondering like, how is this my life? I'm often comforted by the love of my son. And I think that's a really beautiful thing because it kind of circles back. It's like the grief is about him because I'm grieving that he has to go through this, but I can go to him to be comforted because I think that love can be really healing I think allowing that relationship with your child to, to console you is really, really powerful.
1: It's like, I just want to pause right there. I just want to sit in that because that is a beautiful thing. And to remember, you know, that feeling of love, even when you're at that IEP table, it's like, okay, let me take a breath. And I know why I'm here. I know who I'm here for. And you know what? It's going to be okay. We're, we're going to be Okay. Even if it's a tough situation that we're going through right now, it's all going to be
0: okay. All right. As promised, I want to share with you the epilogue of this story. Sorry to those who follow me on Instagram because you've already heard a bit of this. So first of all, it's important to point out that since Kimball's collar was removed, he has grown up so much. He really has become far more assertive and feisty, and I'll just say that my fears about him getting pushed around my kids is no longer there. I think if a kid pushes him, he'll push right back, which seems like a funny thing to be excited about unless you've had a child who is more reserved in nature then you probably understand that, but we will still continue to work on self-advocacy when it comes to adults because I'm not sure he would speak up about not having his needs met. So just to kind of address that issue that we talked about in the episode. So we had our 504 meeting with an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a deaf-blind specialist, and his teacher. And it was actually a really cool experience. Um, They were great about meeting his needs and we were very thorough in going through everything to make sure that everything was accessible to him. And we did bring in a few tools to help him access his classroom. And while we were assessing kind of how he would be able to access his classroom, he was able to kind of run around and play with the toys and interact with the classroom and he loved it. He was super excited. And so that was a really awesome meeting. I went away feeling very empowered and very sure of myself. And I felt like I had a voice. I think in part because of these two conversations that I had with Catherine. So I'm really grateful for that. And I really hope that um those of you who have listened to her previous episode and then now at this one that you might have a similar amount of um confidence boost, I guess, from the different things that she has taught us. So Leading up to Kimball's first day of school, I definitely was having a lot of emotions that come along with change and anticipating him being gone from me for so long. So we actually had three first days of school that were anticipated. So two of those were false. There were a couple of things that had to get worked out before he could start. But I really so I really had a chance to work through my emotions because I kept anticipating this first day of school. and. I remember this one time I was crying just because I it just kind of hit me that he wouldn't be with me all day, every day like he was before and how how much of a contrast that would be and how much time we had together. And Wendy took it on herself to draw a picture. She drew this adorable little picture of me next to Kimball, you know, with like the arms and legs coming out of the head and everything. And a little circle, she said, we're supposed to be hearts. And she said, this is just to remind me that he'll always be with me in my heart. And we put it on the fridge. That was like really sweet. She such a cute kid. So anyway, that that I definitely had to process through that. I know that's been a tough thing and talking to other parents, especially since COVID and some of us are putting our kids in person. Many of us are not. I know that. Um, but uh, I think, you know, after all this together time that was, you know, maybe unusual for a lot of families, it's it's a big adjustment to suddenly be apart. So if you've been feeling that, you're not the only one. So after prepping him and Wendy with lots of books by going to school and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, we finally started and he was super excited. So he simply loved it. He loves school. And I can't even express how much that means to me as his parent and someone who's worried about him and, you know, wondered if he would get along with the other kids and if they would like, I don't know. It's a school for the blind and deaf, so I know that a lot of these kids do have differences, but even then he does have a few additional you know, things going on. So I, it just made me so happy to see how much he loved school from day one. His teacher's amazing. And he clicked with her so well. He talks about her all the time. One way to illustrate this is that after his first week of school, you know, we anticipated his teacher told us he'll probably be exhausted. He'll need a lot of time to like, you know, recoup. It's a lot for the first time. And so I thought he would just be so happy to be home and have a break. But instead he actually the whole weekend he kept talking about school and how he wanted to go see Miss Hillary and how he wanted to go to school and he kept asking me when he'd go back to school. And I'm again, it's hard to articulate how wonderful it is to know how well cared for he is and how much he loves it. That has helped so much with the transition. So it really is such a happy ending. And I guess in conclusion, I just, you know, after that meeting, the 504 meeting. Uh, discussing different accommodations that would be made for him, and this experience that he's had with school, it's really hit me how grateful I am for these parents and others who have advocated to make this process that we went through so easy, for lack of a better word, it was so smooth. I felt so supported, and I know that's not always the case, and it won't always be. You know, as we move on to other schools, but I. I just felt kind of chills thinking about the advocacy that has happened behind the scenes and in past years that really laid the foundation and uh, made it so, so wonderful, such a wonderful experience for me as a parent and for my child. And yeah, I guess that's the note I want to end this episode on is a huge thank you to those listening and not that have paved the way and every inch of progress that you know all of us as parents make in, in advocating and in helping enact change and making things more accessible and easier to meet the needs of all children um, thank you from the bottom of my mama heart check out the show notes for links to episode 59 with katherine when i interviewed her and to find her podcast and website and all the social media You'll also find links to follow me on Instagram where you can browse through adorable pictures of Kimball and Wendy on their first days of school. I think it's worth the follow just for that, (laughs) just saying. Join me next week as I chat with mom Vanessa all about the transformation she has had with the arrival of her daughter Ivy who was born with limb differences. Don't miss it. See you then.